Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo, and today I am happy to share a recent Firebird Book Award winning author with you. She is Deb Radcliffe, and her winning books are titled Breaking Backbones, Book One, Information is Power, and Breaking Backbones, Book Two, Information Should Be Free. In 1995, Deb left general assignment newspaper reporting to research what would become a best-selling book about infamous hacker Kevin Mitnick while he was on the FBI's most wanted list. So she became the first investigative journalist to make cybercrime a beat. Her first article, Barbarians at the Firewall for Byte magazine, was so well regarded that the new cyber field division of the FBI asked to use it for their training materials. And that was in 1996. Let's fast forward to today. She has written hundreds of articles for dozens of print and online publications. She's spoken at West Point, developed and ran a well-respected cybersecurity analyst program for the Sands Institute, and now is an independent cybersecurity author and analyst. And today, we are going to discuss her hacker trilogy, Breaking Backbones. So let's get going. Welcome to the network, Deb. Thank you, Pat. Really nice to be talking with you in person. I know. So happy to have this opportunity. Wow, you're so busy. So much to know. Two books and a third on the way, right? Yes, exactly. The third one's out for peer review right now, and I'm starting to implement the changes based on the reviewer's comments. Mm -hmm. That's always like uh, just sitting there wringing your hands, waiting to see what comes back, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, But I really need the difficult ones because some of them review they're super sweet and yeah. you're like great where is it where, where does it not work and then you get the tough ones back so the tough ones just came back and they're the ones I needed the most they'll take a little while to implement too but I have more military references in book three so it's my military guy who's really coming through for me right now on the on the review comments. Oh. so you peg yourself as the first cybercrime investigative reporter to make this a beat I think we might need you to explain that. Yes, and I'm a female. So there's a couple of big things happening there (laughs) in this world. Um, So, yeah, in 1995, I worked on a best-selling book about Kevin Mitnick. And when I was done, I turned around and started calling and writing computer magazines saying, this thing called the Internet isn't in your business offices today, but it will be within a year I know you're currently using dial-up modems, but the offices are going to have direct connections very soon. And when they do, all heck is going to break loose. And uh, Byte Magazine finally, uh, you know, a lot of the magazines were saying, who, is, who are you? Go away. And Byte Magazine said, well, fine. Why don't you write a story about firewalls? So I literally hung up the phone with Byte, and I called this brand-new company called Microsoft, and I said, what's a firewall? And when I was done with that article, as you read in my bio, the FBI requested permission to um, use it for training material because they said there has been no realistic writing that we've seen about cybercrime and cybersecurity yet in the trade publications. That's when I decided to make it my beat. And I became known for that. I had to work with hackers primarily in the beginning because the cyber cops were just getting up to speed. Dick Cherney, first cyber uh, in, uh, division lead in the DOJ, didn't start until two or three years after I started. So all of my sources were gray hat hackers 
little scary because when I started the work on the book about Kevin Mitnick, they found my unlisted phone number, all of Mitnick's friends, and they were calling in the middle of the night going, hee, hee, hee. Well, I had three little babies in the house at the time, and I thought, my gosh, if they can find my unlisted number this easily, what else is in store for me? Mm-hmm. I called the author that I was researching for, and he told all the hackers to leave me alone that I was like sheep to the slaughter, which is the truth. Um, and so some of them helped me get my own first Internet account and everything after that, and they became a lot more helpful. So I learned how to work with hackers at a very early stage in my career because a lot of them do like to, if at least Kevin's friends like to play head trips on you, like to say that they social engineered you, that they're pulling information out of you. When in reality, I'm a free, I freely give my information. It's not a lot of stuff I need to hide. If it makes you feel more comfortable talking to me, I'm, I'm happy to share this stuff. The truth was I was social engineering them to give me information mm-hmm. and it, it worked out pretty well. We got a really good book together and then uh, down the road, you know, I started hanging out with hacker groups like the Lost Heavy Industries, um, Cult of the Dead Cow. In the year 2000, I spoke at Hackers on Planet Earth 2000 in New York. I uh, used actually some of that scenery as a description in book three uh, about a, an event that's happening with hackers blowing this conference hall with like, you know, a big ocean of hackers and Techno metal is something like a heart beating in the background and stuff. So I reuse some of the stuff that I learned back then, and I'm still learning today, as characterizations, as locations, because I've been everywhere in my career. I've been to the NSA. I've been to the DOD, uh, about two or three of their three-letter agencies. I've been to the Air Force Research Lab where they were showing me how they hide applications that land airplanes in case hackers come in. And this was way before ransomware. In case hacker where hackers come in and shut down their ability to land the plane, oh. they've got the application hidden behind Word files where hackers wouldn't look so they could re- like fail over to the hidden version of the application. Mm-hmm. I've been in the um, Army. I've been uh, felt Bel- Fort Belvoir where they had a term, they used a thing called back orifice, which is something I had written about in the past through the cult of the dead cow. And they were able to show me, hey, we're going to be three rooms down and we're going to turn on a microphone and a video camera remotely and we're going to secretly record you. And they did. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff being demonstrated to me throughout the years, either by hackers and then later the three-letter agencies got caught up with them. So... I'm pretty sure every, even the CIA, I've been to their headquarters right before they shut down uh, press tours because there was an explosion at the gate at Langley. Um, so I've been to inside all the three-letter agencies, been shown around, seen the machine guns, everything. They all have files on me. And now it's a lot easier because I have a reputation and I don't have to physically go to these locations, spend money out of my own pocket as a single mom mm-hmm. to get there. Uh, and, you know, that would come out of my writer's fee, which would leave not a lot of money left over to pay the bills with. But it was worth it because it helped me establish this career. Wow. <laughs> that is just an amazing journey you've been on. Wow. And, and this was, this started in 1996, really not all that long ago. And just think of where we've come today. I mean, I don't think most people realize this, the sophistication of the ability to find and extract information. 
Yeah, as one of day reporter said to me, Michael Zuckerman, who actually did a endorsement of book two for me, he says, Deb, I, I, he, he came up to me in a, a conference thing, and he said, I have to meet you. I am watching you extract the gray matter from people's brains. How do you do it? Mm-hmm. And that's me just talking to strangers at conferences saying, hey, by the way, I heard you say blah, blah up on stage. Can we talk? Yeah. You know? And it, it at first it took a little bit of, oh, my God, how can I go in a room full of technologists and act smart? And then it got comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so luckily I'm an outgoing person, but at first I was really shy about approaching strangers. And now it's like, hey, tell me everything. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard for me now. But, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So how did this all morph into a book? Um, so I think it was like 2005. Scott McNeely, who was the founder of Sun Microsoft Systems at the time, said, hey, we, I can chip, I was at a, a session with him, a press media meeting where he was addressing a bunch of us in a room. And he said, if I can chip my dog, why can't I chip my children? And I'd like to know where they are too. I mean, it's a safety issue. And I went, oh, ugh. And I thought of all the privacy implications. And it's not just corporate America and government that we have to worry about being big brother, but what about criminals? If they can hack our computers, they're going to be able to hack our chips. Mm-hmm. So I been getting really thoughtful about that. And I started putting the story together in my head. So it goes all the way back to 2005. And I remember coming home from that conference and saying to my kids who were 9, 10, and 13 years old at the time, if I put a chip in you to keep you safe, would you be okay with that? And they all said, no, I'd cut it out of my body. And I thought, great, I raised them with the autonomy that they need. And I'm really happy with their answer. Um, but that got me thinking, well, if human chip implants became a thing, right, What? how would they be hacked? Uh, how would they be used against us? What data would they give us access to? Who, and then I'm thinking, well, who would control the network? Well, who would control the databases in the back-end data centers? And, oh, if you wanted to live off the grid and not take the chip, what would that be like? Well, if you could live in a cave, they wouldn't get observation. And I already had the idea 20 years ago of, drones in the air and everything else watching you. And I thought, well, there's got to be other ways. Well, maybe cell towers that scramble the drones and other different ways to actually have a life off the grid where you're not being monitored and watched. And, and of course, you can't buy or sell anything unless you're doing some hacking, which means, well, you're going to have to hack other people's chips to get medical care. Otherwise, if you're a type 1 diabetic with a certain blood type, you, know, you might not be able to get care if you need it. Not everybody's going to be perfectly healthy who's living off the grid, et cetera, et cetera. So the story was coming together, and then the characters, Diantia, um, her original name was Cindy Frank. She was a forensics investigator for the Department of Defense, and that's all in book one. She goes off the grid, becomes Psy, and helps lead a band of hackers in a global assault on Globecom. In, and we're in book two... Um, Globecom is now down, but they were developing, Globecom was developing uh, AI that was so intelligent, they weren't going to need all those back-end databases and then networking stuff and the chips anymore to monitor every human on the planet. So then the hackers are actually going to get a hold of that AI in book two, and they're going to try to start using it for good, but it also makes them a target, and there's a lot who don't want um, that, the AI is going after the bad guys and outing them on social media and stuff. 
Um, and so it's also reallocating the bad guys' income. The GDP of criminal enterprise is actually higher than the legitimate GDP. It's reallocating that to very needy causes. And it's doing what the hackers want it to do, but there is also people after them because of this. So the intrigue and the whodunit and the, you know, kidnappings and other things continue into book two and into book three until we get to a resolution at the end. So book one, Breaking Backbones, Information is Power, and book two is Information Should Be Free. Have you ever considered the surreptitious implantation of uh, chips? I I haven't in this series. I, I made it that everybody's aware they're getting the implantation, partly because there's really no way to do it today, and I'm trying to stay within technical reality. So this feeling, you know, hearing that maybe it's in our vaccines, there is no nanotechnology small enough for that yet. So I tried to stick with what's legitimate today. Mm -hmm. And so legitimate today, someone would have to insert this. They could do it if you were under anesthetic, sure. a different procedure, and you didn't know about it. Right. But other, no, and but, but I do show that it's being inserted into babies at birth. Mm -hmm. And that's why Cyanthia, Cindy Frank. Uh, from the defense forensics labs goes off the grid um, because she does. She's pregnant with a spy's baby, and she doesn't want to chip the baby without the baby's knowledge or permission. Right. Ooh, this is so fascinating! And where are you in book three? So book three, I've already got it written. Uh, there's a lot more military references because oh yeah, China, that's right. Okay, China much more involved and. Um, so Chinese military agencies are involved. Um, it's a semi-private thing, but the military is sort of keeping eye on some things. Um, and uh, Russia is all about oligarchs and no attribution about who's really behind it. And, uh, and then we've got the U.S. military getting involved. And so in this case, uh, Cy deciding maybe she needs to go back to the DOD where she came from because of a, a global uh, power outage and only the hackers can help the NSA get the keys to turn the power back on. And so she's bringing back things full circle sort of in book three. And I don't really want to tell much more because sure. I don't want to give it away. <laughs> Lots of colorful characters, yes, and you also base them from real-life people you've met? Absolutely. I really see this, Pat, as a television series or a streaming mm -hmm. series or a three-part movie for each book, but it, it's really hard breaking into Hollywood, so I've had some meetings with producers. Uh, they told me, turn it into a book first. I did. Now I'm meeting with producers again, and I've got a trip coming up, actually, where I'll be meeting with several producers, so keep your fingers crossed. But in the meantime, um, I, I put all these characters in because I saw it as a series on TV. So Maine, M-A-N-E, his hair always reminded me of a lion's mane. He's a true ha big. Uh, his name is Delchai in the hacker world. His real name is Frank, but he goes by Delchai because he's totally into music, and he sets up all these raves, and he actually, is main in the book, sets up a rave in book one for the young people while they're living off-grid so they can have some things to do. Uh, and um, he 
ends up dying in book two from an injury he received at the end of book one. But that's, he's still spoken of in memory a few times in the subsequent books. Books, But his personality is very similar to the to Del Chai. Um, he had this crazy red hair that always reminded me of a lion's mane, so I called him Mane. And um, there's Hobbit, uh, is a hacker from the Lost, a heavy industry group who has left the hacker community and is now doing digital music. His name, I called him Bilbo, just to make it a little different. I reached out to all these people, showed them where they were in the book. They were fine with it before we published, so I wanted to make sure no one was going to get upset. Um, the, de- the guy in the defense forensics lab who founded it is named Jim Christie. I didn't even bother to change his much, name much. I called him Chris James. And the CIO of the NSA is in book three. His name was Michael Jacobs. I'm just calling him Jacob Michaels. Some of this is just easier for me to remember if I stick sort of close to their original name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of characterizations like that. There's Allure, who I never met, but Delchai had taken me to uh, one of the hacker raids. It was a matrix theme night. They were all drinking these drinks of vodka and red wine that looked like blood. Oh. Everyone was eating. Tricks or vampire themed, and there was this girl standing across the room. She was at least six feet tall without shoes on, probably literally only 130 pounds soaking wet. And she, so she already was tall and thin and ghoul like. So she had six inch stilettos on, and she had vinyl leotard, munitard with a cinch at the waist. So she looked like thick, thin. And so that's Allure in book, in all the books, but Allure gets a little more paramilitary style. Um, as she becomes size protector. Uh, so the, the, a lot of these characters are based on real folks, and then some of them are just people I made up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How fun. We asked uh, Delchai, I said, you know, when I sent him book one, I go, by the way, um, I based this allure on this lady at that, par- that, that party you took me to in New York. And I said, do you know her? And he goes, she used to be my roommate. Her oh. name is Kitty. And I go, well, she's for you, and he goes, that sounds like her. I go, perfect. I made an assumption just looking across the room. So there we go. <laughs> that is so awesome. Just all the places you've been is fodder for your books, for sure. Just all these characters. I love that. Now, your book information is power started trending during um, the beginnings of the Ukraine war. So, yeah, it was trending a year before. Oh, okay. So, published in 2021, and it had information as power, the term we started reading in the news during the Ukraine war, which I thought was funny. Um, not funny, but, you know, wow, I nailed it. Right. And then um, it starts with a drone war and a kamikaze drone that has to blow up the side of a building so that they can get access because it's doing, it's a signal blocking wall. And so they had to blow out the wall to get access to half the data center. And so there was a, a line in there where Sai is saying, Sai can't look right now because she was busy executing the code. So Sai can't look right now, but she's sure Des must be smiling given how much he loves blowing things up. And so their Kamikaze drones didn't come up until the Ukraine war. Drone warfare hasn't really come up since the, until the Ukraine war. And I started writing that book in 2018, but it was in my head mm-hmm. in 2005. So... I look at it and go, okay, so I based everything on true tech that exists today. I thought we had years out in the future before this would become real. The subtitle, Information is Power, 
information should be free, and out of chaos come order. That's actually the hacker creed that was told to me while I was at Hope 2000. And so I just used those as the subtitles, and I titled everything else. Um, the series is called Breaking Backbones because they had to break Globecom's network backbone in order to free humanity from constant surveillance and abuse. Yeah, so you're kind of ahead of the curve, almost like a predictive writing. I know. Some people have called me prophetic, but when you've been in this little world mm. for as long as I have, it's kind of easy to see what's coming next. But right now I'm focusing on metaverse. And it's been hard to get my editors, my paying editors, to take stories on Metaverse because they're like, well, it's not a thing now. I go, it's a thing now. Look, uh, I have a press release from Toys R Us. We're going to the Metaverse. Major cosmetic lines already in the Metaverse. They're using it currently for advertising, but the launch-off is the gaming platform. Corporations are hiring third-party platforms and service providers and engineering firms to create their own virtual realities off of these, launching off of these platforms. And I had a really solid story. The only thing that's holding it back is that VR, the virtual reality headset, and everybody's in a race for that. Google, Microsoft, um, Apple, uh, obviously Meta, and a whole bunch of others. The thing I see that's going to hold it up, though, is people like you and me, if I'm wearing makeup, you're not going to get me to put a headset on to go to work every day, you know. So I don't know how that actually that part's going to play out. I have a feeling that eventually we may bypass the headsets altogether and find a different way to get us into this 3D reality. But uh, but right now, that's the, the going thinking. And in book three, I've got a hack happening in the beginning of the book where the bad guys are still looking for the hackers who still have the AI, and they find them at Paris Games Week. How? Through their haptic gaming club biometric fingerprints in the gaming club. Mm. And so they they pick them out of a crowd of people playing in gaming pods, and they get kidnapped again. And so it's uh, that kind of data that's coming through the gaming devices is, I said, I think that I, I was told there's 5 million data points that marketers and bad guys can pick up on through the gaming suits and the VR glasses, which way you're looking, what yes. your irises are. And, you, and then if you've got everybody's an avatar, you could be talking to someone you think is Joe Blow, but it's really somebody using really predatory advertising or marketing or worse, you know. Hey, look at here's a secret present for you. Click here. Whoops. Now they own you. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it could be any number of things that happen in the metaverse that nobody's preparing for and nobody's building new security or policy around right now. And that's what's scary. It's very scary. What's very scary is that people willingly grab onto this without giving a lot of this thought. It's like, oh, look, this is new and cool without really thinking what the ramifications could possibly be. Right, and I'm hoping these books sort of wake people up. So book one, when I read it to a reading group, uh, read parts of it and talked about it to a a regional reading group, not just local. So they had five different reading groups together at this luncheon. The ladies were all over seven years old, and all of them asked really good questions. Like, they are aware. Mm-hmm. But the book to raise that awareness in an entertaining way and make sure everybody enjoys the story, that it's not 
tons of textbooks out on this stuff, but I wanted to write an adventure thriller series, and that's what I've written. And as you know, it's won a couple of awards through Firebird and another organization called Writer's Digest, all for adventure, action, and thriller, nothing for cyber or sci-fi. So I listed it as a thriller. Maybe I should have listed it as action-adventure. It's kind of a combination of the both. It's really hard to pick a category. It really is hard to pick a category. Um, you know, people often say, oh, you have a lot of categories, but I hate to pigeonhole an author to say you must fit your book into this category because often it doesn't fit and, you know, there's a better way to describe it. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. So your goal in publishing these books was kind of giving people an entertaining way to wake them up. Exactly. Like, would you take a human chip plant? I certainly wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, my kids wouldn't, but that doesn't mean 90% of us would. True, true, true. And that's that's so frightening. There's so much coming at us right now. People often enjoy being willfully ignorant just to say, you know what, I don't want to know and just accept whatever comes down the pike. So I I commend you on writing these books because it's a fun way to find out what can really happen. Thanks, Pat. Even I don't want to know sometimes. Uh It's tiring. As one of my friends said, Deb, most of us are good guys, but you think everybody's a bad guy. And I go, sorry, it's what I do for a living, you know. (laughs) No, I get that because I am a naturally very uh, wary person and a person who likes to do extreme amounts of research before I embrace anything, really, whether it's a medical uh, piece of advice or a piece of technology. I want to understand it to make sure that it's right for me. And you're also a good person with all the charity work you do with mm-hmm. the giveaways with the pillowcases and other vital resources that lower income and struggling people need. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You also, I just found this out, you also host a podcast, right? I do. It's kind of intermittent right now. It's an ITSP, which uh, it's called the CY space B-E-A-T. And mostly I've been interviewing some of the characters mm-hmm. uh, from my uh, book. Uh, and I'll be interviewing today the uh, audiobook reader for my book ah. about what it would be a, audio, a voiceover actor. And I'm doing that in a few hours today, and I'll be posting that probably early next week. Oh, that's exciting. I do a lot of audiobooks. I don't consider myself an actor, though, when it comes to characters. It's, uh, you know, I kind of confine myself more to the nonfiction book. So um, very interesting. I look forward to listening to that interview. Pat, you're a reader? You read audiobooks? I do. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's nice to know. Yeah. Yep, I do. Cool. All right. Well, anything we missed as we begin to wrap up? No. Read the books. Recommend them to your friends. Book selling is always a hustle, so it doesn't make any money compared to what I make for my magazine articles that I write on a weekly basis. You have no idea who is reading your books unless they reach out to you and to know what kind of effect they have. But um, I found just through being a radio host that after 11 years of doing a radio show, a terrestrial radio show, people start to reach out to you and say, I've been listening to you for 11 years and I learned this, this, this and this. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't heard from you in 11 years. So never fear that the, that the work you put out there is not being appreciated and consumed and valued. Thank you for that, Pat. I appreciate that. Yep. All right. How about all contact information so folks know where to find out more about you and your books? Sure. So my website is just debradcliffe.com. It's D-E-B-R-A-D-C-L-I-F-F.com. 
I have a Deb Radcliffe thing selling page on Goodreads and Amazon Books. Uh, if you need to reach out to me, reach out to me through one of those platforms. I'm too paranoid to give my email address <laughs> out in public, like my career background has taught me. Uh, so those are the best places to find me. Uh, the book is available anywhere. It is uh, published through Archway Publishing. You can also get books directly off their site. And it goes to all the bookstores and everywhere else. It's fully distributed. So that's the best way to find my books and the best way to find me. I have a blog, Online Crime Bites, B-Y-T-E-S, that is uh, absolutely connected to my Amazon author page and my Goodreads page. So anytime I post something up there, it shows up at those two locations. And the ITSP magazine, you just scroll down, you just Type in ITSP Magazine on your browser, and you can scroll down and find the Beats podcast there. And it's um, syndicated across all platforms, so just type in the word Space Beats, and you should be able to find my podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Excellent. Oh, this is so fun. I, just so exciting. I feel like I'm living vicariously through you. There's just so much, so much excitement in your life. Breaking Backbones, book one, Information is Power. Breaking Backbones, book two, Information Should Be Free by Deb Radcliffe. Deb, how special to have this opportunity with you. Thank you. Please keep coming back. I'm just so excited about book three as well. Thanks so much for today. Thank you. 